Hey, this is Mark Justice, and welcome back to Between the Lines. Today is a show about sequels on many levels. And I'd like to remind everyone and welcome back, Stephanie Kemmler. Stephanie, welcome back to Between the Lines. It is so nice to be here, and it's wild that it's been a year. Because, like, the weather is the same. I've got my Valentine Day core out, and it just feels like... Like, it hasn't been a year. It feels like it's been less time. Yes. When I looked back, you know, I keep track of all my, all the, everyone I've interviewed and all the questions I've asked. So I'm like, oh, my God, it's, it's been a year when this show came out. And so like, that's something I wanted to, to talk with you about that. But, but this is a sequel show because this is also the first time that I have uh, – you've, you've written a sequel to your first book, which is what we're going to talk about. And this is the first time I've interviewed a solo guest twice. So this is kind of a sequel show for me I as well. I feel very honored. <laughs> me too. Um, so your, your first novel, your debut novel, Bloodborne, um, came out a year ago. And can you remind our viewers uh, about the plot or the, the basic idea of Bloodborne? Sure. It's a story about a 20-something girl named Mina Coffin. And she belongs to this centuries-old blood cult. Um, and it started during the plague days in Transylvania. So the 1350s, what happened was there was a genetic change and you had three choices. You could either uh, not drink blood and die. You could be bloodborne, which is you take blood weekly in a service. Um, or you could be blood mad and just completely indulge in your bloodlust grow fangs, the whole vampire experience, except for immortality. Um, so Mina, it's modern day. And I say this in the preface, so it's not a spoiler, but Mina grows up bloodborne in a bloodborne family and through a terrible accident becomes blood bad. So she's got a lot of the typical 20 something problems throughout the first book. Uh, but a lot of it is, so much of it is about identity and coming to terms with a changing identity, having fangs, having bloodlust. And then book two is sort of through the looking glass and she ends up being exposed to blood mad society. So the first book is all about this religion I created that the blood mad created and the readers getting to know it and this whole culture. And then book two is about the flip side of the coin of blood mad culture. So those are, it's a duet. Those are the two books. Nice. I, I kind of love that aspect that you broke it up into three, <clears throat> three different aspects of being a vampire because um, having played with a vampire story years ago and never finishing it, it was on a vampire and, and meeting someone who, who confronted this vampire and, and at first it wants to kill him, but then like the vampire is like, you know, you won't because you want to know what it's like, don't you? You know, there's this, there's this play like, yeah, as a writer, as a person who's always been fr frightened of vampires, but attracted to them. Um, you're like, yeah, I kind of, I think I like that. It's intriguing that you, you dismiss the immortality because that's, I think one of the appeals, but also one of the right. banes of vampires who've been around for a long time, like kill me now. Um why did you choose to not include immortality as far as, far as like uh, in your blood cult, your blood religion? Um, well, what I did when I decided to create the whole thing, um, 
was I wanted to do something inventive, do something original, which is how I created the whole religion. But I also thought if it's going to be worth my time and worth my energy, uh, I want it to be fresh for me. So I took all of the vampire tropes and just threw them out the window. And then I started deciding which ones I felt for this culture made the biggest difference. Um, one of them that I threw away uh, was the immortality. And I think I did that because it makes the whole story more immediate. It's, I feel like it increases the danger because my vampires can die from cancer, a car wreck, like anything could happen. Uh, they just have this particular vulnerability to not having regular blood. And I kind of thought too, I love this trope in books about the real story behind the folklore, the real story behind whatever. Um, and that interested me so much. So I wanted to make it as real as possible so that it was plausible to a reader like, oh, there's a subculture, like this could possibly happen yeah. uh, to make them as humanized as possible. Oh, that's awesome. Um, speaking of like the backstory that you had mentioned, to me, that was the one redeeming aspect of Dracula 2000. Um, was oh, yeah. The, because it's not a good movie. It's very stylish. Yeah. It's, Wes, it's Wes, Wes Craven has commercial mediocre. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's, and it's weird seeing Leonidas as Dracula. I'd rather see him as King Leonidas, you know. Uh, that's right. that's what I think. When I think I'm like, no, 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 300. You just stay right there. That's the best performance. But the fact that bringing in this biblical story and and Judas, the Judas connection, I thought, oh, that's brilliant. Um, and it's every bit as inventive as you, I don't we probably talked about this last time, but I think the best vampire book ever written Um is I am legend, Richard Matheson, right. you know, talking about giving the backstory about how these vampires and also giving it a different spin. I mean, that's the whole point of the book is putting a scientific spin on the myth of, of making it plausible. Like, yeah, this, this could happen today, you know, right. in the days of the COVID, you know, we could have COVID vampires running around, you know, so. And that was something that so informed my writing of it. Because I started, I had an idea for the characters in December of 2020. And then in January of 2021, I started, uh, it became a vampire thing. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons I put it in the plague days, like the preface and the whole background. Because it's really a book about a plague. And it was written in plague days. And the kind of how do you cope with this giant change? How do you cope with uh, having your entire world turned upside down? Um, and so I thought about that for the like prehistory of Mina. Uh, and then how do you as a culture change and adapt and figure it out? And I dedicated the book to all those we have loved and lost in these plague days, because I think all of us seeing death everywhere, it changes your kind of DNA. It changes the way that you think, the way that you survive. And we have to live with this. And I think that that absolutely informed what I was writing. Sorry to be such a downer, but- No, 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 it's fine. <laughs> That's fine. I, I, I don't, 
it's it's a very intriguing point, one that I wasn't expecting, because um, it, it it definitely lends a lot of gravitas to the story. It's not just a vampire story, and when you're when you're wrestling as an author, when you're wrestling with those real themes and ideas and weaving them into the book, it it does give it a, a weight uh, and seriousness that's a, that's relevant and important, um, because that's the hard part about living is coping with death, not just your own, but as you get older and the people you know and love die off starts with our heroes i think when we were children like you remember them and then they start dying off and then our close relatives and then as we get approaching that age i mean it's you start losing and losing the older you get the more you lose and so it's something that we all have to deal with inevitably anyway um so i that that totally resonates you know with me and i think a lot of people as you said in, in the plague days that we are living in right now i'm I'm grateful for the science that is at least allowing us to be a little safer. Um, but and that's something, oh, excuse me. Oh, no, yeah. No, no, go ahead. That's something that I thought of when I made this religion is how do social structures help us cope with this? And her faith, Mina's faith, is all oral history. They have nothing written down because they have to live in secret. And I thought about how not only the repetition of liturgy can be a calming thing, you have this tradition for hundreds of years, but also telling these stories and having your own kind of lore over generation upon generation. Mm -hmm. And that provides its own sort of peace and soothing, like feeling in the midst of living in constant danger. Um, it's a way to pass down oral tradition, oral oral history. I mean, the, the Aborigines, original uh, Aboriginal people in Australia, have an oral history that dates back some seventeen thousand years. It's you know, and and so that's just like astonishing to to have that. But then that's that's the same premise of why churches have. You know, back in the day in, Medi- in during medieval Europe, they drew pictures in their Bibles. They had the monks draw pictures, or they had stained glass, or or they have statues or paintings, icons, iconography, because people couldn't read and they weren't going to teach them. So they had to depict a complex concept in a picture. But this was so they could use parables or pictures or stories and oral history to pass down their their beliefs and tenets. You know, it makes perfect sense. One of the reasons that we create. I think it's a way to transmit our lived experience of this era of this time. Um, And you as a creator too, I'm sure you know that uh, experience and know the kind of, I guess, responsibility that we have as creators to communicate our lived experience in a way, even if it's not obvious, like I'm clearly not a vampire. Um, That's unfortunate. I, right. I was, you know, they, right? I've yeah. got fake fangs. They look cool. <laughs> they do. They look good. Uh, yeah, it's something <laughs> I want to ask about later. Um, no, it's true. You have to in, invest some of, your, of yourself in the in the characters or in something to make to make it real. I mean, there's a lot of wholesale invention. Obviously, you're you're, you're inventing a world. You're inventing characters, but you have to ground it in something. You know, I mean. Uh, good or bad it's why stephen king writes about writers you know about half right. of the stories are involved writers or teachers or people who drink um so you know <laughs> or it's like, all of the above or all of the above right yeah. and over and over and over again right yeah. mr king if you're listening come on the show um yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. that'd be awesome um he'll ask like what's the last book of mine you read and I, uh pet cemetery um you know but right. <laughs> um 
<laughs> no, no, that that's 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 really cool uh, that you that you bring that up because I think it's true of anyone investing the time and effort that it takes to write a book, which is significant. Um, I remember at a book show, a woman came up to me and, and she goes, how do you write a book? I'm like, how much time do you have? You know, right. she wanted a quick answer because I could see her vegging out like, like 30 seconds in. Um, she just like, didn't really want to know. I think she just, right. you know, wanted a quick answer. I'm like, there is no quick answer, but um, no, no, I'm, I'm really, I'm really glad that you've added the sense of gravitas to it. It's counter to the question I wanted to ask next, which was uh, of the three blood types if you were going to be in this religion if this was going to happen to you the genetic type what would you pick for yourself do you want to be bloodborne would you be blood mad what would your vampire experience be you know i find something so sort of like fun and freeing about being blood mad uh and just i'm i'm kind of a lazy person sometimes and I think the effort it would take to not turn blood mad when you have this like uh, urge to drink blood. I think one day I'd just be like, ah, oh, screw it. I'm just going to be blood mad. <laughs> <laughs> right. Why not indulge? Um, no, right. I'm totally there with you. I, I remember way back in the day when I was studying the left-hand path, mm -hmm. uh, I found a um, like way to, I was looking at different like magic spells and things and like ways I wanted to become a werewolf. That's how this whole, like this thing began, like, Oh, it could become a werewolf. Well, let's check into this. And that was all this ritual. I'm like, you know, why not? Let's try it. But the idea of here's something you can do under the light of the full moon, the plate of silver, and you do this and have this, you know, this animal skin and all this stuff I found to be really fascinating, but it got me intrigued into the study of, of these, the left-hand path, all this, kind of um magic and supernatural and you know pagan kind of kind of things but it it certainly got my teenage and 20 something mind really active like uh i need to know more about this because i'm woefully ignorant i've been in church all my life i want to know <laughs> i want to counterbalance to the goodies and let's bring in something a little more terrifying you know <laughs> i love but, that but the, the the appeal of wanting to be a werewolf is because yeah i just wanted to let go of and so i felt so oppressed, uh, you know, repressed rather, perhaps would be the better word in this very kind of stifling environment. I wanted to just let out. I just, there was something in me that needed to come out and that and was appealing to me. Yeah. Mina says in book two, she at one point loses everything. And she, in sort of her internal dialogue, I write a third person, person omniscient, but she thinks to herself, if this is the circle of hell that I'm in, I might as well enjoy it. And I think that you mentioned the left-hand path. It is that it's this um, blessed indulgence in the pleasures of the world. And like, if we're all damned anyway, might as well like make it worthwhile. Right. And Better to rule in hell, right? <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I found that sort of fun to write like that she says what the hell and just jumps down that rabbit hole yeah. not even like walks like she's just totally right. i get it i get the appeal because that's exactly i would I'm like i i don't even i don't want to hear about the other two blood mad i'm just i want it all but i also want to do the whole like shape shifting and the mist and the flying you know i want the whole package but but if right. you couldn't do all that um i would still be blood mad and just enjoy it you know, like, no, this is a, you know, you kind of take on this, like, no, 
I have been evolved for some reason. Something happened. This is what happened to me. This is where I'm at in the food chain. And I've got 7 billion Big Macs, hamburger, right, right, for, exactly. you know, or, or blood milkshakes to drink from, you know, it's like, yeah, I, I would have no qualms with that. Um, no, no, that's, that's great. That's great. So Blood Mad, the book, your sequel comes out on Valentine's Day. That's right. I know. And Bloodborne also came out right around that time. So is there a significance to this release date for you? Part of it was the publishing schedule <laughs> of book one to make sure I had enough time for everything. Uh, Valentine's Day is my second favorite holiday after Halloween. I feel like there's something so just essentially romantic about vampires because it's such an intimate act to drink blood. And I also feel like marketing wise, this is so crass. Um, all the vampire books come out in spooky season. And I felt like to make it sort of a special experience to have it in February when people are stuck at home and reading books and to inject a little bit of romance in their lives. And the overarching genre is gothic romance of both books. And I feel like to have whatever your situation is on Valentine's Day, so many people don't have a distraction from the monogamous couple like thing that we have in our culture. And I thought like, what a nice treat, like whatever your relationship status to indulge in something for yourself and to sit with a tea and a cozy blanket and to experience romance uh, with no effort. Like that's part of it too. Like, you don't need roses. You don't need chocolate. Like you don't need the, the accoutrements. Um, yeah. And then I love Valentine's day. So I think it's really cute and fun and I love reading romance. So. That's, that's great. Again, that's another interesting, one of the things I find interesting uh, in our, the times that we've talked is I've never known anyone who picked Halloween and Valentine's day together as, as like their favorites. It's, Halloween or they're a Halloween person or they're a Christmas person, far more Christmas people than Halloween. Um, but no, 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 that's, uh, that's awesome. I mean, it's a good, you know, as crass as you want to think it's, that's a great marketing because you have carved yourself out a niche um, in this, in this time where everyone's thinking, Oh, you know, fat babies shooting arrows at me and overeating chocolate. Here's, you know, like, like no, the person next to me is going to become the maraschino cherry. I'm going to drink that, <laughs> you know, it's like, no, I, you know, the chocolate covered cherry. I like that. Um, so that's, that's great. So do you have any special promotional plans for blood mads release? I know last year, I remember your promotions and you had some really interesting, like your cover reveals and those kinds of things. So what are you doing to promote uh bloodborne or blood mad rather? The similar stuff to last year there. I just did a cover reveal. I revealed the blurb. Uh, the title was set from like day one. Uh, and I'm also doing some pricing deals, which is has been kind of an interesting way to bring people and get attention. Uh, I'm also sort of pushing this message of like catch up on Bloodborne before the sequel comes out. Uh, so we're doing discounted pricing up until the release. Uh, and then we're doing a few like promotional bundles. Um, I'm working with another gothic romance writer to maybe do a bundle with the two of our books. 
um, trying to book some signings like in person, because as we're getting out of our plague days, like that's become a possibility, uh, doing an Instagram Q and a, which actually like was really good for, I think PR or for marketing. Um, and that has been so weird. I've had to learn marketing and social media marketing from the ground up. I knew nothing about it. I had no experience. And from the day I signed my publishing contract until the right now, it was a crash course in what works, what doesn't, what you should try, what you shouldn't try. And that that's been an experience. That's been <laughs> it's a steep learning curve for me. Yeah, I I um I tried some last year before I went back to school and things got crazy and um you know my four books are very in very different genres. So it, it's like everyone had to be marketed differently because you're marketing to different, you know, audiences, of course. But it's become a, you know, it's a full-time job if you really want it to be. Yeah. And you and I just like I just don't have time, you know. <laughs> like like I right. I stopped writing for a year because I was just too busy. And now I'm just getting back into writing my own sequel to my first cozy. So um, I, I kind of, I kind of get that, you know, it's like, I, I just don't have time for all the marketing, but I'm, I'm, I, when I see it, I admire the people who have had that time because you have to, I mean, even as a, you know, you have a publisher, you still have to do all your promotion. The, the you know, the, the game has changed where publishers don't do the promotion that they used to do, which is still, I think, a major appeal of, you know, doing things self-published in a, in a way, not to, not to agree that you've got a publisher, but thinking if I have to do all the work, I want to make more of the money, you know? Um, but it is a lot of work to market. It, it's just a tremendous amount of work. For sure. And I signed, it's a small indie publisher called Curious Corbin. And I signed on the dotted line because my royalties are higher because it's not like HarperCollins, it's not Penguin, whatever. And that was exactly it. It's like, if I'm going to do the work, like, why am I giving away so much of my equity? But also I have a lot more creative control. I have the final say on my title. I have the final say on my cover. Um, I have a final say on the edits and that was really um, very appealing because it, for me, it was the best of both worlds Sure, because you get the um, all the benefits of a publisher and then a lot of the perks of self-publishing. Um, and maybe I'll talk about it later, but I'm planning on self-publishing a novel maybe in the fall uh, and then going back to my publisher, but I'm so curious to have that experience and then have total control like yes. part of it like kind of freaks me out okay. and part of it is like ooh, that's kind of cool like there's no middleman right right yeah kdp has been the complete disruptor you know and 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 that's that's fine i i, I appreciate right. that um you know but yeah we, i definitely want to ask about the future works going forward but i um i would like to talk about the sequel writing process. Yeah. You just finished your sequel. I'm working on one. How long did you rest before you started writing Blood Mad? I did not. Oh, I you went rest right, at all. right into it. Nice. Okay. Yeah. I would say I started the first couple scenes within a couple weeks of finishing the first draft. So the first draft I wrote in February and March of 2021. 
Um, and then I have this thing I've done since October of 2020. I write at least a paragraph every day. And so I was using that time. If I did more, if I did a whole chapter, that's great. But if I was committing to that time and I was committing to plugging in for at least six, seven sentences, um, I was excited to jump right in. And I had had plans of doing a third book sort of in the universe, but that's the break I took. After I was done with the sequel, um, I was like, man, I need a break from vampires, the bloodborne world, whatever. Uh, but this, the sequel took me a lot longer because for the first draft, because I was balancing marketing and promoting book one and then all the editing because I had, you know, the first draft and then I signed on the dotted line with my publisher in let's say July of 2021. Um, and then it was a mad sprint to the finish of having a professional editor and doing a revision upon revision. Um, so I was doing that. It was co-occurring with writing the sequel. Um, but it was, it's a wild experience. <laughs> well, I can imagine, um, you know, I, as a, <clears throat> my creative arc is I'll go in phases where I have all this creativity and ideas will be flowing and I'm, you know, I keep a book and I write everything down because otherwise I'll forget. Right. Um, but then the process I've, I've been fortunate in the fact I, I, where I might have ideas for other books and I'll always keep note of them. I, I can only work on like one thing at a time, you know, um, by about three quarters of the way done, the next book is like screaming at me, like, Hey, you got to yes. finish this thing and work on me now, you know? Um, but you know, you've answered some of the questions I wanted to ask because you didn't wait going back into the world. So that, that is something that I've taken a few years between the first book and now this one. And I wanted to ask you questions like, well, how was the writing process different or how did you feel as a writer? Did you feel any differently as a writer? Because you did, you were going right back into it. So it was almost like you're, you didn't really stop writing. You're, you're continued writing like two books in a row. I think I noticed a huge change. I noticed that edits were easier. I mean, it's still a grind. It, it, doing line edits is really hard, but things came faster. The first set of revisions for the sequel, um, I got it. Like I understood my voice. That was probably the, the biggest and best change between the two books. I found my narrative voice and I used it in book one but I was just really comfortable with it in book two. And the writing is much better. And it's funny because my editor for book two was different. And she read book two as an editor. And then for fun, when it was all wrapped up, read book one. And she said, you can really feel the growth uh, with the craft between book two and book one. Um, she's like, not that there's anything missing from book one, but She's like, with you practicing every single day and having that first experience, the the writing has evolved. Um, and she's like, that's good to see. She's like, you want to see that with every author, that what they're doing is paying off. Right, exactly. Um, if you were to take a couple years between 
the the blood universe and and write a few other different things and then come back to it i would love to know your feelings about coming back into this world because for me it was intimidating to come back into my cozy mystery town after i had written a splatter western and a non-fiction almost like a, a mess like a doctoral dissertation and then a pulp action horror you know very different books and then like okay i really need to get down the second book of this series people are asking about it which is great um but it has been a weird feeling because i had to go back and reread the first book because it had been a couple years and i was like dreading that like oh man how much is this going to suck and i was pleasantly surprised that it really didn't suck i mean i <laughs> thought it would awesome. like there were a couple parts that were like Okay, a little too saccharine here, Mark. You gotta, you know, just stop it. Um, but it wasn't bad, you know. I mean, again, it's not like, ooh, what a great book. But I didn't remember ninety percent of it. I mean, I knew what was going to happen, obviously, because I wrote the thing. But as far as like the reading experience and the lines and the things that were said, I I, I didn't recall writing it, which was right. a completely weird cerebral experience. Like, wow, how I know I wrote it. My right. fingers were on the keyboard, but I don't remember it in the moment. Um, so I'd love to hear sometime down the road, you take a break, you come back and read your books again after a year or so. That's a really wild experience. If you want, that's you my plan. Once uh, the sequel is out, once that sort of um, sprint to the finish is over, I want to sit down and read both of them in a row and see how it connects, see the flow. Uh, but I, I had to dip into book one and read a copy, uh, bits and pieces and scenes to remember what Mina's experience was in a particular way. Um, in book one, she has this sort of first love thing with a guy who has no understanding of what she is. and to sort of remember how that affected her and to see that in the sequel. And she goes through a lot of uh, understanding and reflection of trauma she had as a young person in book one. And I sort of had to revisit those scenes as I was writing book two to say, oh, this is her history. This is why she would make decisions. Uh, so the timeline was squeezed a lot shorter between the two books but I kind of write chaotically so I write scene here scene there whatever um so I had to while I was doing those scenes remember her relationship with her brothers remember her relationship with this that and the other uh to get in the right mindset um yeah and I would say you said is it intimidating there was a lot that was intimidating about writing a sequel um, because you have reviews and you have fans and you have people who just aren't into it. And I wanted to make it a satisfying read. I wanted people who liked book one to get to the end of book two and say, wow, that was like, it filled every need I had for the sequel and I'm really glad I invested the time and the money um so that was intimidating and then to make it it's not a standalone novel but to have the story arc be standalone 
and to have new characters and to have it be just as full of an experience in book two as book one, that was tricky and it was intimidating. Like, I'm glad you used that word. I, I completely, completely get that. <clears throat> um, you know, you've got a two story, two book arc. Um, my cozy is a four book arc. My other two genres That's are. Uh, huh? Sorry. That's a lot. Four is a lot. Well, when I see people who've done these like cozies, they've got like 20 cozies of the same character. It's like Agatha Christie, you know, um, with Hercule Perot and all these other guys. Like, I don't, it's great. I'm not going to be that kind of writer, I don't think. But um, because the 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 concept of the, the series is seasons change. So I thought, well, I got to have a book for each of the seasons. You know, it's all about change and, and how we're resistant to change and how sometimes change is forced upon us. But it's not always a bad thing. We can grow from that, you know. And how it's easy to get into a rut, you know, and what it takes us to the catalysts that takes us to prod, a prod us into something different. Um, and I thought it just, it's very easy to go with the seasons. There's already so many built in tropes and, and, and imagery, you know, but how do I turn that on its head? You know, so, um, no, I, I totally get that, but it was scary going back into this world, like, cause you're wondering, okay, one book of anything fine, but going back to it, like, you doubt yourself like okay can i do this again like was this yeah. a fluke you know because because for me it, it had been a couple of years and i was a much different writer by the time i'd written my fourth book which I, I felt weird writing it i i wrote it it was a month challenge like write a book in a month and i did it and it's a, it's a pulp length it's not like incredibly long 100 and some pages 110 or something but um it, it i didn't feel anything to it like my other books, I felt a little more connected to. This one, I just, I, I knew I was writing words and sometimes I could tell, oh, that's a good phrase or that's, but I had no emotional connection except for like one day of the writing. And I had no idea, like, man, I've, I, had, I don't know if it's going to be any good or not. And, um, but the people who read it, they really liked it, which made me feel happy. Like, okay, good. I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. Um, but going back into this world, there was a sense of, yeah, the trepidation, intimidation. But once I started writing it, it was very easy to slip back into the character, the main character of Abby and the seeing the world through her eyes. But my challenge has been, I'm introducing a lot of new characters like you, you've introducing a, a self-contained story, but you're also expanding the universe. Right. And my whole expansion over the four books is to introduce a lot of characters. Cause then I'm going to kill them all off in the horror <laughs> book, you it. know? Right. So I'm like, okay, I got to work in about 20 new characters a book. So I have a lot of people to kill off. Right. And that's, 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 I think the most challenging is to incorporate these characters in a way that we get introduced to some of them. We see some of them flourish and to just keep track of this growing world at, at while Abby's story arc is, is taking shape in, right. and, and using Maslow's hierarchy of needs as she's evolving you know, from the baser needs in book one, and now she's evolved. And so the the the, the main main tension is that as you evolve in the hierarchy of needs, the next step up is relationships and your place in the world. And so now things that didn't uh, bother her, and now she's like wondering, it's all muddy, which symbolizes, I thought, the aspect of spring that I like so much, not the pretty spring with the flowers, but the ugly spring right before it gets warm, you know, the oh, winter thaws there, yeah. it's all muddy and sticks everywhere, and you, know, you might still see some snow on the ground, and everything still looks just wet and dead, and that's that's what I like about that book. It's like, 
and to put it in a Christian context, you know, you have the gloom of Good Friday before you have the wonder of Easter. And this book is a lot of Good Friday, you know, and there's just a lot of this sad, this kind of a little more intense stuff um, bef- before the payoff, you know. And so there are things I like, but it's still, I'm, f- I'm still struggling with feeling anything when I write. You know, I can still write a, a, pay, a couple pages a day um, to kind of get back into the chops of it because I'm still rusty, but I'm still right. not really feeling anything. Um, did you have those days when you were writing? We're just like, I know I have to write. I'm just not feeling it. And and how did you get through that? Well, I'm a mood reader and definitely a mood writer. So I think my process where I write, it's sort of a, maybe a patchwork quilt model where I have different scenes and I eventually like tie them all together. Um, and I think that helps because if I have a scene where there's, let's say an interpersonal conflict, if I'm experiencing that in my life, uh, it's easy to slip into that scene. If I'm having a great day, I can slip into a scene that I like to create a sense of safety before I just really like do away with every single thing and the the safety and put some danger in there. Uh, So if I'm having a great day, I can write these little lulls in emotion. Um, And if I'm feeling emotionless, uh, I have probably four or five uh, projects going on at once. So if I'm not feeling Mina's story, I can pop into oh, I'm feeling fantasy. Oh, I'm feeling dark academia or whatever. Uh, But then I have lots of tricks too. Music is so influential for me when I'm writing. So if I have a tricky time popping into that world, I'll find the music. I love on YouTube music or Spotify or whatever. You can have these like mood mixtapes. And you can have one for the mood of it being gloomy. You can have one for the mood of it being uh, like cheerful or whatever. And that helps so much. So there, there's tricks to it. And then there's also just the DNA of how I write lends itself to always being in the mood for something to write some aspect. Yeah, it would make sense. Because <clears throat> I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, you're a, you're a pantser for the most part. Or do no, you plot? I'm an intuitive no? writer. So this okay. is, I'm taking myself out of that uh, binary. Okay. Uh, and when I start the story, I have a general gist of things in my head. As I go, I, I write these pivotal scenes as I'm writing. And they make up a whole. And I think it's like, Like I've heard before that some sculptors look at a piece of marble and they see the whole sculpture and all they do is chip away at everything that's not that form, not that figure. And I think that that's the way I do it because I just have like an intuition about where the story is going, where the characters are going. And I chip away making a scene here, a scene there, whatever. Um. And then once I get about 30% in, I get to the really cerebral uh, thinking about what scenes are missing, making a checklist of what needs to be written, and then making sure that 
this world that I created sort of in my head is on paper somewhere so that I can make it logical and make it all those things you need. Yeah. Eventually you have to have the sinews to connect the the tissue of all those interesting plots. Okay. I, I have, I, I'm more of a plotter. Uh, it comes oh. from my years of a- in academia. You know, uh, academic writing means you need to plan out your paper before you write it. You know, right. um, but I have had ins- inspiration in written scenes when I didn't know where they would take place. Like I know this is a scene, and something will strike me. I'll get into a dialogue, or these characters are going back and forth, and I'll just write it out. Like I know I'm going to use it, just not sure where yet. And I'm I'm fine with that because I'd rather have it out. Because if I if I don't write it, I'll never be able to recreate it like again. So I, I totally, I totally get that. So my notebook is filled with little scenes or I'll be typing something, um, writing something and I'll get an idea for something else. And I'll just have an open document there or on the side and I'll just write it out real quick, you know, and, you uh, yeah. Know the song by Simon and Garfunkel, the dangling conversation. No, I don't think so. Uh, I have in my notes app for every single project, a note that's the dangling conversation and it's almost written like a script, but it's three, four, five lines of something I want to happen, but just the dialogue. And then eventually when I go back, I can create a scene from that, but I love having this. I don't know. Sometimes when you're on a walk or you're driving or whatever, you can kind of hear a conversation between your characters and I love having a concrete place to put that. Like mm-hmm. you said, in your notebooks or, you know, in a document. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I call it the dangling conversation. <laughs> okay. No, that's great. I love that. Um, oh, that makes that makes perfect sense. Because um, you, you are in this, you're spinning multiple plates at the same time because you're in a creative phase, you're in an editing phase, you're in a marketing phase and a publishing phase. So... That's that's pretty amazing to be thinking on all those different levels. Um, you know, I I find myself I cannot do that. I'm either I mean I'm either getting ideas, I'm in the creative phase, or I'm in the actual production phase or editing phase, and then marketing. And I kind of got like take a rest in between. You know, I guess got to depending on where I'm at. Um, you know, so but I totally I totally get that. I want to come back to Bloodborne because I remember reading on one of your Instagram posts that this is the conclusion of Mina's story. And I think you had talked about that, this two book story. Did you always have a two book arc in mind? Cause um, it avoids the, the trilogy trope and it, it avoids this ongoing sequel. Like we need, you know, six books to tell our story or it's just such an interesting concept of having just two stories. Um, would that, was that your, always your plan? No. And having a sequel is not the plan. Uh, book one was supposed to be a standalone. And when I got to the final paragraph of the final page in book one, there's a little uh, thing that happens. And I was like, oh shit, I got to write a sequel. (laughs) Excuse me. And yeah, tell your listeners I'm getting over. That's fine. I can always cut this out too. It's okay. No problem. Cool. Excuse me. So... It wasn't until I got to that final paragraph that I knew I was hooked. Like I I had to do it. And then when I wrote the second book, I knew 
early on that there were places for Mina's story to go, but mostly what I was thinking was like spinoff type stuff of side characters. Uh, but I knew I wanted a duet after I did that final paragraph. So Okay. How did it feel to finish her story arc? I was kind of emotional. And I'm not a very, I guess, outwardly emotional person. And I realized what happened was I was putting off my final line edits, a book two. And I was just dragging. Um, I had a deadline, but I have tons of time. I should have just been like could have just like got it all out. And I was asking myself, like, why is this so hard? Like, this is such a simple thing. And I realized it was because it was really hard to let go. And it was hard to say goodbye to it. And there are characters I say goodbye to in book two. And that was an emotional experience. Um, But closing out her story, I was a little bit uh, affected by the whole thing. And it was also a really bittersweet kind of precious feeling because I had thought about Mina sort of as a little sister the whole time. And I was really like proud of her development. I was a teacher for a long time and I taught high school. And now I'm seeing these kids I taught in high school, finishing college, going to grad school, getting married. Some of them have kids. And it's like that to me is such a beautiful, touching experience. And I felt that way about Mina. Uh, And this whole feeling was wholly unexpected. I thought I would feel more of a sense of just personal and professional accomplishment. I didn't know it would affect me that much. Um, It makes perfect perfect sense. I... uh... I don't... um... I haven't finished the story yet, you know, so I'm not sure how it's going to feel. I mean, I've already got the last <clears throat> paragraph of book four kind of already written. Uh, you know, I know how the series is going to end. Um, and I'm kind of looking forward to that even more so killing them all off. But that <laughs> the uh, and people are like, you can't do that. How does that make you feel? I go, I, I created them. You know, I, I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to uh, destroying them, you know, <laughs> um, because I know that world is a different universe, you know, but I, I, while I haven't felt emotional, I did feel emotional at the end of my first, of the first book because it was done and it, it kind of comes around full circle at the end. And it's kind of this beautiful like moment, like, Oh, okay. And that was just very fulfilling to see emotional responses in my readers. Like they were touched by this and, but, that what you talk about this, like you didn't want to let them go. When I was editing my first movie, I was going through editing and and stuff and watching all the outtakes. And it was really sad to finish that movie because I was no longer spending time with my friends and was kind of reliving all the fun of shooting that movie through every outtake and slicing it all together. And when it was done, it was like, Oh, okay. It's done. We're it's, I'm not going to spend more time with them, you know, and I, I, so I completely, I completely understand emotional connection um, to, to what you created. It's a very personal, strong bond and it's a legitimate sense of sadness and, and love that you, you feel. Cause you like, you feel like you really know these characters and you want them to be real, you know? And you spend so much time with them. Like not only are you spending time in edits and revisions, But also in your sort of downtime, 
you're emotionally invested in the characters and you're thinking of them. Like I think of them if I'm in the line at the post office. I think of them when I'm like vacuuming or folding laundry or whatever. And so they're just a constant presence. Um, And the story is a constant presence. So I think that as writers, as creators, um, yeah, it makes sense that it's, it, it's a surreal experience saying goodbye to people who don't actually. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. I, uh, I completely, I completely get it. And and maybe I'll feel differently by the end of book four when that story arc is finished. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. I probably will. I mean, because I, I've already written the end of the horror book too. Like I know how that's going to end. I've already, I've already plotted out the death of all the main characters from book one, you know? Um, And so, but, but writing the end of that book was emotional for me. Like I felt it punch me in the gut, like, Oh God, you know, not in a way like, Oh, I'm so sad to see you go. But in the end, like, I felt very moved, like by watch, like if you've seen the mist, the Stephen King movie, the mist. Yeah. It, the, the ending of that movie is different than the novella, but uh, it's so like, it just knocks the wind out of you. Like, Oh my God. And and that's, that's very much how I felt when I wrote the end of this horror book. Like, I'm thinking, God, if it affects me like that, how's it going to affect people who've been reading and loving these characters for, you know? And uh, so I was excited as a creator. I'm like, I'm excited about everything that's going to come with this, all the good and bad, because I know people are going like, how dare you? And other people are like, Oh my God, I made, you made me feel something or whatever. Um, yeah, there's no, this one yeah. scene uh, in book two that's almost straight up horror. And there are horror elements to both books, but this was like legitimately scary. And part of that scene, there's like a very emotional, empathetic experience. And I was a little freaked out afterward. And I was kind of in a funk after I wrote it. Um and like you said, I got got excited for readers. I'm like, if I'm having this visceral reaction to this scene, uh, I really hope that someone else, as they're enjoying the story, will have that huge emotional and psychological investment in it. It's cool. It's cool to freak yourself out. It's cool to write you, things. Because you, you can't plan to freak yourself out. It, it's a legitimate no, reaction no. to what you write because it all comes out somewhere. And when you come out, you're like, wow, I, how did I, how did I produce this? You know, it's like trying to tickle yourself. It's like, no, it's not going to happen, but there is something to like, wow. Okay. This is, this is intense, you know? Yeah. Um, No, I, 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 I get that. I I get that. Um, Since you've finished Mina's story arc, but can you see yourself revisiting her character for more stories? Like not necessarily in this timeline because she's been around for a while. Right. Um, or this this whole thing. But can you can you see going back to her at any time for a, a short story or another book? Having her in cameos, I'm not ruling out. What I hope to do maybe one day is to have like my own little anthology of spin-off characters and spin-off character arcs of short stories. Um, because there's so many characters I fell in love with. She has these totally unhinged twin brothers who are older than her. 
and they have a zillion dollars, they're app developers in Silicon Valley, their life is completely over the top. So I have kind of a spinoff character, spinoff idea for them. And that was actually a huge challenge when I was writing book two. I had Mina's story. And parallel to it, I had her brother's girlfriend, Tabitha's story. And they were running concurrently. And my original plan was to have these two stories together. And I had to get rid of that. I think I was 40% of the way writing. And I was like, it's just not working. It can only be about Mina. It's taking away from the experience to have this other character. And not only to remove most of that, but also it had tentacles and all these other scenes to sort of pull those back and do the corrections. But one day, yeah, I think I'd like to have her story in there, this character, Tabitha. And yeah, there's a bunch of side characters. And I think I'd like to write a book with one of the blood mad characters at the end of book two. And that character could have their own story in the blood mad world. And it was hard to say goodbye to the blood mad world because it's so over the top. Yes. It had to be delight, deliriously fun to, to indulge. And like, it's what you do is with a world like that, you just, it's pure id, you know, you tap into your id and like, what can't I do? You know, if I'm like, homo superior as uh, as um magneto might say you know what can't i do when the world is my buffet <laughs> you know and i i have these powers and no one's going to believe it because you know it's it's the 21st century you know no one's going to believe in that vampires so yeah I, I i totally get that i think that would be too, the temptation of becoming a monster would be just too easy too, too simple you know right um, and i when writing the blood mad like you said, it was great fun. And I also, so their culture is built on success, family lines, competition. So, so many of them are very wealthy and they hide behind that wealth and they have that power um, and they could do whatever they want. They could take whatever they want. So there's a few characters in that part of book two who just are beyond the law. And they can let the bodies pile up and they can like do whatever the hell they want. And I was kind of inspired by, you know, these Hollywood executives or sort of the very wealthy, very powerful and how they can get away with murder and they can get away with all of these things. And it was almost like a parody of that and a commentary on that with a few of these uh, older, powerful blood mad characters. And it was hard to suspend my own ethics and then kind of indulge in like just villain, villainy, villainy. Yeah. Um, that's fun though, right? I mean, that's, we can do yeah, that because we know like it's not real. You know, it's really like the people cool. who take everything so seriously, you know, they maybe should stay away from reading genre fiction, but oh, right. um, you know, like the people who think Stephen King is is, is a crazy person because he writes about these horror things. It's like we know as as artists and as creators, we know it's not real. So right. you can let yourself dip in and become as vile or as horrible as you need to be, you know, which is 
for my second book, I wanted to delve in because it was cozy, sweet on one so first great. book. And then book two is splatter Western. It's like the antithesis. It's like, that. you know, like Hellmark, not Hallmark. Um, so I really was just like, what's the worst I can do here? Let's, let's show it. And I'm like, oh, I've had people like stop reading. Like I, I don't, it's in my head. I can't get it out of my head. You know, I'm like, thank you. I worked hard to like get it in there. So, um, but at the end of the day, you're like, there's an amazement. Like, wow, I, I, I wrote this, and I'm like, how dark it is. Um, but at the same time, you know, you know, it's not real, so it's it doesn't affect you in a way that like reality doesn't come in because it's still fantasy at the end of the day. You know, I had to ask myself a few times, are you okay? Like, are you an okay person? Um, and then there's this one scene early on in the second book where there's a religious sacrament. And I play with her religion like a cult. And I let this giant sacrament, it's an entire chapter. I indulged in the ghoulishness of them being blood drinkers and then they have uh, relics. And I'm so fascinated by religious relics. And each scene or each moment, I could be like, how far can I push this? How weird can this be? How like disturbing can it be? And I had to ask a few friends. I'm like my critique partner and other people reading. I'm like, am I going too far? <laughs> I love those writer friends who were like, no, push it even more. Like keep going. Yeah. And it became this hugely memorable scene because I let it be what it is. I let it be as sort of gross as blood drinking can be sure no no that's great i love that um i don't have uh i i have a small circle of writing friends who i let see my drafts and like they give me feedback um i i didn't so much on book two maybe i had some people who wrote it or read it when it was a draft and they you know they gave me commentary for the back of the book but they didn't have anything to say about other than they were like um, this this is strongly written and this is, you know, your prose is really good, which I was happy with. But there's a scene at the end of, toward the end of Gage Black, because it's a revenge story. And I, nothing I love better than revenge. I mean, you know, okay. none of that forgive and forget. That's bullshit. No, no. And then revenge is not best served cold. I mean, it's got to be hot, molten right. hot, you know. And there's a scene in Gage Black where I've had to warn people who I who were willing to read it. If you get to page 112, you better stop to like 127. Just don't read those 15 pages. Because um, I, kn I knew when I was wrong, like, wow, this is really fucking dark. Like, this is like way I have. <laughs> but when I have gone back to reread it, it is so satisfying. Like, right. because it was my it. I wasn't censoring myself. I didn't worry about, I, I didn't like this was, the, and I think it's why I like that book so much is because it's the first time I have com felt completely free, like a worry about genre, audience, expectation. I didn't even know the term splatter Western until after I'd written it. It was just a grueling, violent, redemptionless story. And oh. I tried to make the re vengeance as visceral and horrible as possible, you know, and agonizing, you know, like, and the people who read it's like, Fuck, Mark, Mark, that is really dark. I'm like, thank you. Because that tells me that you are as affected as I wanted you to be. I mean, I right. 
I could have made it very simple. Gage shoots the guy. He dies. No, no. 15 pages of protracted awfulness, you know, and that was the oh, problem. So, cool. so I'll tell you what, I'll send you a copy if you'd like Please to do, read yeah. just this page. And, you know, it's a quick read. Um, yeah. I'm going to skip right to those pages. <laughs> okay. Put it like um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it it will have better payoff if you know the premise, but that's okay. Yes, if you want to, but that's that's like the worst, worst, darkest, most beautifully id full uh, thing I've ever read written. So, um, do you know the line in Tombstone where I forgot who says it, but it's it's not revenge; it's a reckoning. And I love that line. And I love this idea of revenge almost being emotionless and that the person having revenge is just like exacting justice. Yes. And there's a scene in book one where Mina sort of finally found finds her power. And she has a reckoning, like is the agent of reckoning. And... I love that, that, that she steps into her power by saying enough is enough. And I'm like the justice in this situation. And then in book two, it's similar, but it's more like impassioned. Uh, And I love that. So she goes into it as like a reckoning, but then once she starts the violence, then she's feral. And then she's, it has a thrashing kill and devours someone's throat or whatever. And you see this struggle in both books of her trying to have this, uh, I'm doing justice. I'm making the world right, whatever. And then once I get into it, like that animalistic urge. Yeah. Um, and that's really likes it. Yeah. yeah. Like, well, this isn't, this is pretty good. I could see myself doing that. Yeah. Right. That's the satisfying part of writing to that id because it's huh? going to be satisfied. I mean, there's a, those primal parts of us that want revenge and that's all the things that religion has told us. Don't do that. I'm like, no, 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 no. There's a reason why I want to get revenge on someone who's, you know, fucked me over. I need to right the world. There is a sense of justice. And, and no, I totally get that because that's, that's what Gage is. It's all about justice. People who set him up, sent him to prison right now, now he's coming back to exact get, get his revenge on those people who lied and framed him and but by that time any humanity that's in him is gone you know like he's now he's just he's like he's a monster and one yeah. one, one of my critics wrote he's just like the soulless monster i'm like thank you because that's that's yeah. precisely it. it's like He's had nothing to do but think about this for years. And the things that he'd gone through in this hellish prison have just drained him of his humanity. Just There's nothing left but revenge. It's, it's just a cold, fiery, hot revenge. That's all that's left. And hate. He's driven by hate. So, um, yeah. And then when he gets his opportunity to to take that revenge out, he's not. he wants to enjoy it. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. No, no. I, the christian story too because you have this experience you talked about easter of good friday and then there's the idea of the harrowing of hell when jesus descends into hell and grabs the keys back to the kingdom and in faith it's been sanitized so often 
like to take that out to leave that whole experience out and it's actually it speaks to our maybe more base desires to say enough is enough to say to the devil i'm taking the damn keys back could be so i like to think that they played rock paper scissors to get those that's that's my (laughs) no i yeah i I, yes i remember hearing that story you know from childhood right you just never know how it ends you know how that happens um but right right no it is all those all those stories have been sanitized right but even the i mean even the bible i mean god's gonna get his revenge that's why he created hell in the first place right i mean to get revenge and to see his eternal nemesis punished for all eternity you know i mean so there's something there's something that must be really appealing because we created a God that reflects our desire for revenge, you know? So, you know, I, I totally get it. I totally get that. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit here um, and talking about your world. um, What aspect of the world that you have built and created do you like most? Um, I think I really enjoyed the creation of the religion. I am a very devout person, although I have a weird religious path. Um, I love the language of liturgy. I love the experience of sacraments. And to create my own, to write my own scripture was a wild thing. I think I had to suspend all of my narrative voice and really change how I think when I wrote it. In undergrad, I studied history and creative writing, and my creative writing was primarily in poetry. And it was interesting getting back to that poetic mindset and that voice. So I found that great fun to just say, ooh, if I made a religion, like, what would it be? And I remember those projects in school where, I don't know if you ever had those, where you have to make your own country with its own flag. Mm-hmm. And you have to make your own like religion or whatever, I guess, like anthropology for children. <laughs> and that was a lot of fun. And then, like I said about book two with the throwing off of ethics, that was pretty fun too. But yeah, number one was doing the religion. Cause it's, it's a cool uh, kind of powerful experience to be in that role. Sure. Oh yeah, definitely. I don't know if I'd asked you before. Um, have you read Dune by Frank Herbert or any of the Dune I series? I read book one. Okay, because yeah. you had the the liturgy. Fear is the mind killer. You know the Bene Gesserit. Um, I think you would continue on those stories. You would love that because the Bene Gesserit become very important. You know, and prominent in those stories with the whole liturgical aspects of it. But um, no, that, that makes perfect sense. Uh, so, what aspect of your world do you like the least? Oh. Uh... If there is anything. Yeah, I don't think anything. And I think if I didn't love every last moment and have an affection for every last moment, I wouldn't include it. I think because I'm such an intuitive writer that this, this sounds so weird, but if the vibes are off for any scene or any moment or any interaction, it goes. Yeah, you and, have to. You have yes. to. Because you know when you're writing, when it's not working. And sometimes you just have to get through it to kind of get the idea down, but you know, you're going to come back to it and fix it. Or the character, the character's flat when you're writing it. Yes, exactly. But you know, like, okay, 
it's not working, but, but you have to go back to it. Yeah. And I think that happens a lot. That authenticity with dialogue for me is that each character has sort of their own micro dialect. Like Mina says, um, frequently, especially in book one, because she's uncertain with herself and she has a lot of slang. She curses a little bit. One of her brothers uh, has a, I don't know, he's unaffected by the world sort of attitude. And he curses a lot and is very certain and very terse with what he says. And so I had to use my intuition to make sure that each of those dialogue bits and parts and sentences and micro parts of those sentences um, read true and felt true. Uh, so yeah, liking the least, I don't think anything, because if I liked it the least, yeah, it would have to It'll go. be gone. That makes yeah. sense. Makes sense. Uh, what has been the most rewarding aspect of writing this series for you? Uh, I think that sense of completion. I loved academia for that. Um, I love this feeling of it looking and feeling and sounding the way you imagined it would. There is so much satisfaction to holding the book and saying, this is as complete as I hoped it would be. All the thoughts are on the paper. All the experiences are on the paper. And it, yeah, just feeling a sense of accomplishment and completeness. Uh, right now, that's been super rewarding and super satisfying. And then I think the other thing is that the stories are entertaining and engaging to me. That's hugely satisfying. And I think I've, I've got a lot of answers here because there's nope. a lot. That's, good about that's fine. That's good. Um, but I have a few people who've kind of fangirled, fanboyed about my characters. And I love when they're reading it and they like send me DMs or text me or whatever. And they're like, how could you kill off this character? <laughs> how could this character do this and what's wrong with this person? And I hate them. And, and I love that it is yeah. so cool. And you can have a million accolades. You can have a ton of sales or be up for awards or whatever. But for me, having those conversations is priceless. It's incredible. It shows a level of investment that rivals your own. And if in some ways, surplants it or not surplants it but 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 supersedes it you know like um people who are really in love with these characters um in a way that the story resonates with them which is that's always wonderful to hear that from from readers like they they want they want to continue with your stories they like reading what you're doing and that's that's rewarding in a way that um it's so deeply satisfying. It's, uh, it's, it always comes as a surprise, you know, like, Oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, like I, it's just, it's kind of humbling, you know? I was so excited. Uh, my second editor, um, she a few times, I guess, broke character and she put like, Oh, this scene is hot. Or this is like, I'm so stressed out here. Or I can't believe this character did that. And that was really cool 
to have a very professional, incredible editor. Um, her name's Anna Corbeau, and she's just, I couldn't ask for more as an editor, but to have her invested in the story and her kind of sending me DMs after she was done and saying, oh, this experience was great. And I remember this character and, and that was really special because uh, she was one of the earliest readers of it. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Oh, as a writer with a family, yes. how do you manage to get writing time in? So I, I heard once someone say they had a newborn and they were a nonfiction author and he said he has to hustle in the margins. And I find, I found that so meaningful because when you have a busy family life or whatever life, if you're juggling two jobs, like you are two teaching jobs, um, that you have to find time little tiny slices. And I don't have this writing process where I can sit down and very often with a glass of wine and, you know, have an hour of silence to myself, light a candle, whatever. Um, which if people have that, oh my gosh, good for them. I'm so excited. But for me, everything's on my notes app on my phone. So the very first novel I wrote, I wrote 90% of it on my actual phone just like typing away. And that was at, in the school pickup line, that was, you know, having a cup of coffee for 10, 15 minutes, um, having my son watch a little show while he's having lunch and I can like slip away into my imagination. And I just, I have to make it work and I have to make it work for the chaos of my life. And then I get really excited when I do have these moments where I can sit and have silence and oh my gosh, I bang out work like crazy. I was recently on a almost five hour flight and oh my gosh, I got so much work done because it was like silence. I had my noise canceling headphones on and my laptop and I had a window seat. So I had like no distractions. Um, and my productivity is so much better because I'm just used to it being difficult. Yeah, that's, um, I was one of those writers before when I, when I wrote, I had the luxury of, of writing as much as I wanted, you know, um, and which was, uh, you know, my work schedule was allowed me to, to do that. So, but right. now that's a different work schedule because, you know, different kinds of jobs. Um, if I was just teaching, then it would be also very different. I could check my emails in the morning, have the whole day to write if I want, check them in the evening again, you know, but now, cause I'm doing, doing both. It's quite different. So what I've, I've started to say, okay, morning, I still feel very productive, but I'm also still have enough energy to get my work done at the end of the day. So I carve out like, okay, if I'm up at seven, I'm gonna give myself till 10 in the morning to write. And then I can still, like, usually by the time I'm, I'm up and have breakfast and all that jazz. I'm usually it gives me about 90, 90 minutes to, you know, two hours a morning where I can just this past week, I kind of got back into the grind of just writing and feeling what that's like again. And so that, that seems to be working. It's a different mindset than, right. than what I used to have when I would usually write in the morning till like one in the afternoon, one or two. And then, but now I can't, 
I know, I know. It was so like great, but now, so I'm, I'm making that work. That's my, I'm trying to say, okay, I, I have this time and on those days, or if I'm not, if I'm not teaching, like if I'm not teaching in the summer, then that's going to give me more time. I could, I could play around with that anymore, but you know, um, no, no, I totally get that. I totally get that. No. Now that the series is done, are there any other genres that you would like to work in? You got the dark gothic romance. You had mentioned something I wanted to bring up, and I forgot earlier, but you mentioned this term, dark academia. Yes, I, I've never heard that. Oh, really? I'm oh, so excited to hear. What is this genre? Is it is it like Lovecraft? Because that involves academia, and I mean, it's like Lovecrafting. Right. I can see that, but what is dark academia? I must know. It's not usually uh, supernatural. It's usually grounded in the world. And there's, there are two books, there's Ninth House, and then The Secret History by Donna Tartt, I think. And Dark Academia fans, I apologize that I didn't like get this right. But it's a lot of like, secret societies in Ivy League schools. There's usually some murder. There's usually lots of secrets. There's sometimes professor-student interactions. Okay. And a uh, highly competitive academic environment. Um, if there's romance in it, there's usually like an enemies to lovers uh, competition kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, it's centered in an academic world, almost like a non-supernatural Hogwarts, only older. <laughs> so there's always something going on. And the next project that I'm working on it's weird to not do supernatural. That was very strange. And it's not only dark academia, but it's very dark, a lot of violence. And there's, it's very, very explicit. And that was a weird experience doing. Um, but I was writing it while I was writing book two, uh, Blood Bad, And it helped me, there are a few more, slightly explicit intimate scenes in book two than in book one and I had the practice of doing it in this dark academia book um but if you get a chance type in google images or pinterest or whatever dark academia aesthetic and you'll see a ton of pictures that'll get you into the mindset of oh that's what this is (laughs) okay no that sounds fascinating I'd never heard it before I'm like oh okay that that's all kinds of intriguing um because I like working academia into other genre fiction, you know, like Lovecraft has this whole Miskatonic mm. university and all these things. And I've got a, a Gothic inspired horror series that takes place um, in a fictitious town in New England, you know, in, in uh, um, Massachusetts um, in the 19th century. And it's kind of, there's a Lovecrafty and kind of esque, you know, feel to it in that regard. So but that's uh, that sounds intriguing, though. I'd never heard that term. That's and then the next two projects uh, are probably the next one is sort of an alternate history urban fantasy. And then the one I just started like a week ago and I'm like so into uh, is contemporary fantasy. And it's about like alchemy and elemental creatures. And that has been that has been really freeing because I don't, I'm not particularly fond of high fantasy, but I do like contemporary fantasy. 
Is that yeah. like something like fables, like things that are set in the in the modern real world, like fantasy elements in the real world? Yes. Okay. So, so like Sandman, fables, things like that. Okay. Having, comic books. Yeah. Do you know the series, The Magicians? I've I know of it. I've not seen it. There's a there's a TV series, but it's based on a book series, and it's as if there's this um, school for magicians that you can access through kind of a portal. So Harry um, Potter, we got a Harry Potter. Thing. Yeah, okay. That, Harry Potter is definitely contemporary fantasy, and in this recent project, which it could work out, it couldn't. Like I'm just trying it out. Uh, yeah, there's portals, and the portal is through a dream world. So some people have in real life hallucinations in their sleep wake, like if they have early REM sleep. And that is the portal through which fantasy comes and through which sort of the horror comes Interesting. Uh, is through dreams. But okay. it's fun to play with genre because I like reading all different genres. Um, and I love switching it up and reading something new, reading something I've never experienced before. And so what I read so influences what I write, I guess for all of us. Yes, it's true. It's true. I mean, my early efforts, I'm embarrassed by them all because they were just bad imitations of things that inspired me, whether it was a Stephen King horror story or trying to rewrite Dune when I was like 17, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, I can tackle this, um, you know, uh, right. No, no, I totally, I totally, I totally get it. Right. We're all imitative uh, of things in, in our own ways, you know, totally, totally, totally. Um, now another thing I wanted to talk to you about because it's uh, if you if you still have time to, to hang out, um, it's about marketing because you have done you've done a lot of marketing for Bloodborne and now for Blood Mad, and through your through your Instagram um, and you may be on other social media, but um, you you have a variety of posts and what I've noticed is that you you have pictures. Uh, that have of yourself and and like you did a, like a gothic spread it was like um gothic glamour in a way you also yes. had like the vampire ones which i thought those pictures worked out beautifully they were really really great because they identify you with the genre so very yes. easily and from the, the the clothing the lighting the makeup the fangs i thought they were fantastic and then you have posts about you as a writer or a reader you know hey here's what i'm doing letting people you know know what's going on you have like commercials for your books you have cover reveals so i want to talk about these strategies like which one of these strategies do you think has worked most effectively uh, as a marketing campaign um or, could, or, or do you know it's my publisher and i have started analyzing uh how ads have done social media ads how pricing has done uh like discounting and whatever um it's tricky with KDP. It's tricky with Amazon because you only get quarterly numbers. So you can't see in real time, but I created an Instagram creator account and I can see engagement levels. I can see how many followers I've gotten after a specific post. Um, and that helps me because I know that reach and engagement are connected to whatever kind of post this is. Uh, but what I've been relying on is following other social media experts who do make good money at what they do. And this is hysterical. So my favorite one is this girl named Angelica Cresci. And her full-time gig is she is a Hades priestess. 
No joke. It's incredible. Huh. Like Hades as in hell, the god of hell, Hades. The Cathona god. And she's nice. A and huh. she's pivoted to being a business coach, uh, but using astrology and using uh, like all the witchy things that she can to help people with their marketing. Okay. I follow her really closely and the way that she understands business and the way that she understands marketing and profitability, um, I find really cool. And I think she's 26 or 27. And when I've looked at my demographic, it's who engages with my posts. It's primarily women, uh, 18 to 24, sometimes pushing to the 24 to 35 category. So I'm paying close attention to someone who is of that generation and someone who seems to be doing it well and whose posts go viral and who's making a full-time living at this outlandish career. Um, so that, I guess, finding, you know, you find your writing sort of mentors and heroes and whatever and I'm doing the same thing with marketing. I'm finding the few people who resonate with me. And I kind of base my content pillars on what she's doing. So I read a lot about marketing. I find it really interesting creatively. But there's kind of the, as a writer, doing behind the scenes stuff. And then directly marketing your book, quotes and trailers and whatever. Um, helping them get to know you as a human. Because, I mean, that's the essence of influencers is if you get to know someone as a person, then you trust. Right. You like them and then you'll buy whatever they're selling if you trust them. Sure. Right. And then I kind of hustle hard in my real life. Uh, I made bookmarks that are on one side is the synopsis of the book and the other side is like my bio. And if I hear anyone talking about vampires, I'm like, Hey, have you, have you heard about my book? And I pop into local bookstores, um, A, because I love supporting indie bookstores and B, because if you can get that in-person relationship going, um, then that really, it seems to pay off. I was recently tagging along on a business trip with my husband's and it was just a ton of people on this trip at this resort. And it just, when people ask you what you do, and I say I'm a novelist, that it's really organic, that they want to learn more and whatever. And I saw on my social media stats, a huge spike after that one-on-one -on -one interaction with people. And I almost think that that's far more powerful than what you can do with social media. But people read what their friends read. And I think the number one like marketing rule especially for books is word of mouth. Like word of mouth is going to sell a lot more books. Um, and in terms of social media marketing, I just have to stay consistent and I have to stay making regular posts and following trends and then always engaging with people who are commenting. Um, but it's tricky. It is not easy. And it's not easy doing it in the creative phase. Like you talked about, like you have a very distinct, um, yeah, it's, it's like you said, it's almost a full-time job as well as it's a whole new field. It is so different than writing. And it changes a lot too. And then we have, you know, TikTok with like 
a book talk and yeah. Instagram with the reels. I know the reels are a lot more popular now than like just a regular post that, that, that gets more attention if you're making a reel and you know, there's, there's all kinds of, all kinds of things that, that you can do. And I think following other writers and getting to know other writers is also very helpful. You know, you see the genres and um, that, that things work in, but like, everyone is <clears throat> still, because there's, so many people writing now and there's a lot of good stuff out there and it's hard to kind of get yourself noticed and and right. you almost have to have your circle of people um you know and then you're still going to have uh it's still a struggle to get people to read you know <laughs> read anything these days i know book sales are just not what they used to be i, I did a report uh when i was finishing up my uh grad work in technical writing oh. um i did a report on KDP and self-publishing versus traditional publishing and just the trends and, and the whole market of publishing is just uh, staggering, you know, the, the numbers and how many copies an average book that comes out will sell. Yes. You know, most writers don't get, they don't get more than their advance. They don't even, they don't even sell enough copies to cover that advance. You know, I'm like, goodness gracious. Um, you know, most books sell 2000 copies in their lifetime. That's it. You know, right. it's like, it's just, it's amazing uh, when you see the numbers and, and, and for uh, indie authors, the lifetime sales of a book is about 200. Mm -hmm. So it's just, you, it's hard to make a living as an indie writer. Right. You can't you gotta do it because it's fun. Um, right. It's just not going to happen. You know, it's just not going to happen. One thing I paid attention to early on was because visual media has become so important. I saw these books that sort of popped off the posts because the interior and the cover and the font and everything were gorgeous. And so you have a book that maybe was written 10 years ago that you didn't pay too much attention to the formatting. And those kinds of books really get lost in the shuffle because it's not immediately impactful. So for Bloodborne, the title page and the like opposing page, uh, I found in public domain, these two artists who were making Art Nouveau uh, illustrations in the early 1900s. And I put them on the inside. And then for every chapter heading in book one, I have a phase of the moon that Galileo illustrated. For book two, I was able to uh, take my book cover uh, designer. And I made, I had him make custom illustrations for each of the chapters. Uh, I, he had like seven and we cycled it through, but I wanted it to look like a cabinet of curiosities type thing. So I have a bat that he illustrated and then the scientific name of it. And I have a scorpion that he illustrated with the scientific name under it. And those are the chapter headings. And I've had a couple of big accounts, people who 10,000 people follow them. And I've sent them a book for free and they take the time to open it and say, oh my gosh, this is gorgeous. Like, look at this page, look at this font, look at this cover. And yeah, I think learning early on that packaging matters more than it ever has, uh, has made an impact on marketing and sales. Mm -hmm. Well, we, that's one thing I, I found out through my research is that <clears throat> indie publishers or self-publishers um, or indie market, 
the there was a lot more work spent on the cover as an attractor for a potential reader than you see in traditionally published books like the last Stephen King book has nothing on a cover, but like his name and the title of the book or something like that, because you see the name, that's all that matters. Oh, it's Stephen King. You don't need a cover. Right. But for us who people don't, who the hell's Mark justice, who the hell's Stephanie Kemmler, um, you want to see something graphic, you know, and, and I've been fortunate to have, and, and for a few of my books, my friends who are artists, give me their art, you know, my, 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 for Gage Black, it's a, my friend who was passed away a few years ago. He was like, he painted this cover for me. Um, this, you know, he painted Gage Black with a shotgun blasting. It's all red. It's beautiful. I'm like, oh, there it is. Um, and, and then another, another friend who was a comic book artist, Mike Gustavich did the cover for Death's Head. And my other friend, Sean, uh, Sean Burris did the coloring and it's, it's, it's beautiful. Like, oh my God, you know, and then the other books I, I did covers in Canva you know, myself. And then, uh, it's amazing. It's a great, it's app. amazing. Yeah. I, I spent a dollar up for my first book cover. Cause I bought a little town graphic and then I gave right. that graphic to my friend, Danielle, who's a graphic artist. And I said, can you kind of redo this, but put the little, the business names on the buildings and then do instead of for snow for the first one, can you do like raindrops for the second book and put it on sand for the third, you know, so she's doing the town graphic for the other books, but I'm still making it in Canva, you know? So, but for the next Gage Black book, on my other friend Al has already, I told him what I wanted. I kind of described exactly. So he gave me a quick sketch. I'm like, that's it. <laughs> you know? Oh, so I'm like, I'm just so thrilled. And I feel so blessed to have friends who want to contribute, like, and just like are willing to give me their time and effort, their talent, their treasure to, to like make this book come to life because that's, that's what sells it for, for us indie writers. Like someone has to go, oh, they got to be pulled in like when I was a kid as a comic book store or spinning or the drugstore spinning the comic book rack, like what cover looks cool. Like, Oh, this is going to be a great story. You know, the cover might not be nearly as good as the cover, but you want something to pull you in and, and, and covers do that for readers, you know? Yeah. And my cover designer, Mitch green, he is so talented and it was so cool with the first book because it's a white book cover with black art on the front and a little bit of red and books with white covers are so rare. It is hard to find them. And that was cool because I love the art before I loved that sort of concept. Uh, so people kind of feature that in posts. And then for book two, the cover is a photo negative of book one. And instead of having a white cover, uh, actually, can I go grab them? Yeah. Okay, cool. So book one, uh, this is the cover Mm -hmm. and the photo negative, this is a proof. So it's got like the band on it, Yeah, but it's exactly a cover. Right. With a little more blood splatter on it, right? Blood splatter and. And you got the hardback too and the paperback versions, which is nice. Yeah. It's really cool. Um, This is the KDP hardcover, Mm -hmm. but the Ingram Spark one that you would order it from my publisher or from me or whatever has a dust jacket. It looks. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Um, How was your experience with KDP? I was in the Delta, the beta program for the, for the hardback uh, version. Cause I did, I got a hardback of my cozy and I have to tell you, I was not impressed with the process uh, and the, and how it turned out. I'm just grabbing it here. Um, 
I mean, it, 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 it was off center. It was the, the, it was kind of squished. Um, right. You know, it, I do it, like the cover though. I feel oh, like, yeah. um, the parameters are a bit different. And it could have changed after I got this. It could be a little different process now, but I thought, man, for the money that came out, maybe I could see myself buying a handful of these as like special gifts or for people who like read the book and, you know, my, my beta readers, but right. to buy a, a hardback book to sell, they're like $10 more a, a, a copy. And it's like, ah, that's just too much money. No one's going to spend that money on, on a book that I wrote. Although people do because book talk is so, and bookstagram are so popular. The people who have those accounts want hardcovers because it looks better. Their posts do better, whatever. Uh, and it was funny when we were pricing the ebook, I was surprised. It, it's on promotion for $3.99 right now. Regular price is $4.99. And I told my publisher, I'm like, that just feels weird. Like that just seems too inexpensive. And she said, she's like, actually the ebook sales drive paper sales. She's like, so if someone reads the ebook and loves a book, they're going to want as a souvenir that book in hardcover paperback. Mm. And I was like, wow, that's like really clever marketing. And I do the same thing. If I have a favorite ebook, I, it's like, I collect records and it's really so cool to stream it on my phone, but then have this physical copy of a record or a book or whatever as a souvenir. Um, so even if they get it through Amazon and it's not quite exactly what I would love it to look like, uh, it's still something special. It's still like, it feels more official when it's hardcover. It, it does. Right. Even when I got this, even though I wasn't happy with it, the dirt, it was kind of dirty. There was some like grease on it. I'm like, what are, you know, but no, still just seeing it because uh, it's a different publisher. Um yeah, but seeing it in hardback, it does feel, like I said, more official. There's something about about this. It's kind of nice to have, you know. But it's always it's always scary great to see your book come out. Like when you got your your author proof of – because you're like, okay. Because it's a different experience when you try to edit when you're looking at it on paper than on a screen. Like you will find things that you have looked at the screen 50 times yeah. and you will miss something. You Two seconds into the paper, like – how did I, how did I not see this? But it's, it's a, I don't know why that is, but there's a different process. Your brain goes in a different mode when looking at paper, you know? I did, I do everything digitally, but then for the line edits, those last things, I print out everything. And then to translate that to my uh, publisher, I took screenshots of it, but you're right. The amount of things you catch when it's a physical copy, I actually had to put my proof away because I was just picking at it to death and I'm like, it needs to get out there. I have a deadline and it's not good for my mental health to keep picking at it. Like at some point I have to say goodbye to this manuscript. Right. It's not, you can't, it's not going to be perfect. There's, you just have to come to a point where you're happy with it enough to say, okay, let it go into the world. Wash your hands of yeah. it. Yeah. Right. Because the next thing's waiting. You know, and it, it wants its place. It's like, okay, you're done with this, right? Okay, we can start now. <laughs> you know, right? I, I I totally get it. I totally get it. Um, no, no, it, it's good. It's good. So, um, we we've been talking uh 
like two hours, just FYI. I know it's crazy. So I, um, it's gone by like that. So I, yeah, I don't want to, yeah, I want to keep you all day, but, um, I'm going to give you a chance. Let's just let everyone know where can we find your books? Um, you got other things in the works. I know it's very exciting. You got these two books out now. You're working on multiple projects coming out soon. You're working on this indie book. You're going to self-publish. Then you're going back to the other publisher. So anyone who's interested, how, where can they find your books? How do they find you on social media? All the goodies. Uh, the primary way to interact with me and interact with my books is through Instagram. The account is writing Stephanie Kemmler. And if you put it in the show notes or whatever, then you can spell it correctly. But I kind of thought, um, when I wrote that, it was sort of thinking of being John Malkovich. <laughs> it's writing Stephanie. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so that's on Instagram. That's going to have the latest news. That's going to have uh, promos, pre-sales, the cover reveals, all of that. I also have a website, stephaniekemmler.com. Um, on Instagram, I have a link tree where you can follow me on Goodreads. You can, uh, I put your podcast, like the last episode on there. Oh, thank you. Everything. Nice. Thanks. It was really, it was so exciting because that was the first podcast I've ever done. Oh, really? Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. And you've uh, been doing interviews since, I'm going to guess. I just had one two weeks ago. One should be coming up soon. Nice. And then I had an interview in Vampire Magazine. <gasps> with like a wow, there's a magazine, Vampire Magazine. That is awesome. <laughs> it was so exciting. Yeah. Um, so Instagram's a great place. I would recommend, you can buy my books. You can order them at any bookstore. Uh, you can buy them on Amazon. But if you buy them from my publisher, you can get signed copies. The packaging is beautiful. You're going to get bookmarks. You're going to get like handwritten notes. The whole experience is so much nicer through my publisher. Um, but yeah, I'm available. If people want to chat, you can, you know, send me a DM. Happy to fanboy or fangirl about any of the books that I've written, any of my characters. Uh, and I try to make myself available in as many ways as possible because uh yeah i love having conversations about this kind of stuff yeah it's been great i can't believe we've been talking for two hours that's insane um how quickly I'm gonna have to rest my voice for like <laughs> yeah get up more hot tea kick back and relax you know um put a scarf on you know um well i i want to thank you again for coming back on the show and um this is i'm going to have this this will come out uh, in, in a week because I know the book comes out on Valentine's Day. So I'll make sure this comes out this Saturday. And um, I, I do hope that you just do tremendously well. I want to see this uh, as a movie. You know, I want a Netflix movie. I'm terrified. I like, unless I can choose the cast. Yeah. I kind of don't want it. But I, I, I hope it does well. Yeah, same here. Well, you're writing in a genre that's really popular, um, right. you know, and bringing in the, the romance aspect and all kinds of things. And I think the religion part you play, there's so many differences. It's not just a vampire trope book. And that's, I think it's what keeps it fresh. And um, I'm, I'm just really excited to see what happens as this one comes out for you. So I'm going to do my commercial and we're going to get out of here. How's that? All right. 
Hey, you've been watching and listening to Between the Lines. You can find us at unsaneradio.com. Listen to full episodes or download to your device. You can watch us here on our YouTube page, Between the Lines Podcast. If you're watching, that's probably where you're at. Don't forget to hit the like and subscribe button. You can also find us on the Otel Talk channel on Roku. Um, if you know someone who would like our show, tell them about us. And if you're a writer and would like to join me for a chat, email me at betweenthelines54 at yahoo.com. It's betweenthelines54 at yahoo.com. And Stephanie, here's my cheesy outro line. See you next time, Between the Lines. I love it. Thank you so much. <laughs> this has been joyous. Thank you. 